Awesome, awesome. Uh, today, we are going to spend most of our time in Matthew chapter 5, so if you want to go ahead and start turning there, um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll kind of cover a, a little bit, but we'll be focusing in on um, verse 27. But to start, I want to tell you a little bit of a little story. Um, me and Franklin, occasionally, um, just on the, on the side to make a little extra money, we'll put in sound systems at churches. And uh, he's the brains of the operation, by far. Um, and I do all the grunt work, which means I run the wires, I climb under the old creepy churches, churches and, and I, that's what I do when he sits in the air condition and plugs everything in. Um, if the roles were reversed, it would be bad, because I wouldn't know where to plug anything in, and I think Franklin's a little claustrophobic. Um, but the bad thing is, is I'm also a little claustrophobic. Um, and so... A couple weeks ago, um, my father-in-law is, is, is an associate um, pastor at a church over in Spartanburg, and they asked us to come and put in a sound system. This church is a, it's an older church. It's been remodeled. It's been added on to a few times. And me and Franklin went over there, and we looked at it and said, you know what? We can, we can do this. We can get y'all a sound system, get y'all working, um, get everything sounding good. We'll do it. So we go over there. We get everything set up. We get everything unboxed. And, and Franklin says, okay, it's time. It's time time for you to go underneath the church. So I, I muster up all my courage, and I go and I open the crawl space, and immediately everything I see is spiders. And like, I'm not deathly afraid of spiders, but they're not my favorite thing, and I don't want them on me. And so I've got this giant stick, a flashlight, some crowbars, some wires, and I'm crawling through here on my hands and knees. Um, and I, I, I get this deep appreciation for people that do this for a living. I just... You guys are awesome. You're my heroes. Um, and so, like I said, this church has been remodeled. It's been added on to. And so my first task is to figure out how to get where I'm trying to go. And so I've got this idea in my head about which direction I'm supposed to go. And I, I go crawling. Um, and I, I take a right because that's the way that it makes sense in my brain. And then I run into a wall. I said, hey, I'm obviously wrong here. And so I crawl back a little bit. And there's a hole blown out in some of the cement because what happened is they had an original sanctuary and they built a whole extra side on. Instead of, you know, making it easy to crawl through, they just said, we'll just blow a hole through here. So I shimmy through this little tiny hole, and I'm, I'm, I'm gotten some, some dad weight, and so it makes it a little harder for me to crawl through those little holes. So I get into this place, and I'm, I, I finally get in, and I look around, still in the wrong place. So I crawl back out the hole, and I spend, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes with Franklin knocking on the floor going, okay, this is where you are. I can't go anywhere from here. Well, you've got to go somewhere from here because you're not where you're supposed to go. About an hour and a half later, I finally get to the place where I'm supposed to go. I will tell you this, though, there are no more spiders left under that building. <laughs> no more. So I get to the stage, and then I have to crawl all the way to the back where the sound booth is, and the, the ground starts to go up. So there's less and less room for me to crawl through. And so I get about halfway, and I, ha I have to start praying, talking to the Lord. I'm singing, I'm singing hymns. Um, anything to keep me going, because I, I was done. I was done. And then I get all the way to the wall, and I've got to stick my hand up through the floor into this little hole, which who knows what's in there, and run wires through so Franklin can grab them. It was one of the most difficult tasks I've ever done in my entire life because of just how frustrated I was, and I had to call, crawl under insulation, and I cut my knee on something metal that I just, I'm not going to think about. Um, and it was difficult because I could not find my way. I knew where my destination was. I knew where I was supposed to go. I was supposed to go to the sound booth. It's where I was supposed to go. And I had this map where I figured it would be the easiest way to go in my head. But I was very, 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 very wrong. So I finally emerge 
looking like some sort of swamp monster. And we go and we, we collect ourselves and we plug everything up and everything's working. And then I get in my car after, I think we were there, what, 10 hours? It felt like that day. It was a long time. I get in my car and I'm just exhausted. I'm covered in mud. I smell funny. Um, and all I want to do is get home to see my wife, see my baby, and take a shower. And as I'm going down the road, God speaks to me. He says, you had a pretty hard time there, huh? I said, tell me about it. There were walls everywhere. Everything was blocking my way. It was the most difficult thing because I just, every time I tried to attempt to get where I wanted to go, something stopped me. And I felt God push in a little harder and say, you know, I wish that's how your life was when sin tried to attack you. He said, because your, 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 life, your life's a straight shot sometimes. There are no walls put up in place to stop Satan from getting in. He's got a game plan. He goes in straight to the source. I felt impressing on me and saying, you need to set your life up like this old church so that when Satan comes at you, you'll aggravate all of his attempts. And he'll get frustrated and you'll frustrate his attempts. And it stuck with me. And then once I started really digging into this, this message, that was about, I guess, about a month ago. God brought that back up again. He said, you know what? The same thing that, that I taught you in that night where you were just so aggravated and so frustrated, I want you to tell my people that. Because I believe that, that we are so susceptible to sin and falling, and we, we believe that the outer door to our life is, is strong enough, but as soon as the Satan gets in, he's got a straight shot for whatever's in our life. We haven't put up the right boundaries. We've not put up the right things to, to keep us away from the, the sins that we know attack us all the time. We, Satan, here's the thing, Satan knows you. He knows you intimately. Not the way that God knows you, but he, he, he's seen you. He's seen your tactics. He's seen the way that you do things. He's seen your tendencies. He knows that you've got a little pet sin in the corner that occasionally you'll starve, that's where you lean. That's where the, the chink is in your armor, the weak spot in your wall. He wants to attack it. And so God wants us as his people to build some extra barriers in, those, barriers in those areas. Put walls up in our life. Make it so that Satan doesn't have such easy access to our lives. And if we'll do that, if we'll start to, to take <clears throat> some action in our life to build these things up, then I think we can have more freedom from the sin that that attacks us daily. And so that leads us to Matthew 5 this morning. I believe that Jesus here gives us some amazing instructions on how to build those, those barriers. And it's not easy, it's not fun, but if we want to have a win over sin, I did not mean for that to rhyme, but it was convenient, then we've got to do something drastic about it. So I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll jump into the scripture. Father, God, I, I pray that, that I would just be a mouthpiece this morning. God, that every word that comes out of my mouth is spoken directly by you. God, and I know that everything that possibly could have happened this morning that would go wrong did technically. And I've got the mic that I don't want to use. God, and so there's, there's some anxiousness and some nervousness in my heart. 
God, but even if, if all the, the mics and sound equipment stops working, I'll stand in the middle of a chair and I'll, I'll scream your words, whatever you'd have me to say. God said, so don't let me get distracted. Don't let the people in this room get distracted. Whatever they've brought in here with them, God, I pray that you would push pause on it. Because I just don't believe that I'm the only person that's, that's, that's distracted this morning. I don't believe that there's it's just me that's thinking about something else or whose stomach is growling. God, so I pray that you would put distractions on pause for just a little bit. Because I believe that there's some deep, hard truth in this message that your people, that I have needed to hear. God, so please, please speak this morning. God, and let your people hear your words, not mine. God, help them be receptive. In your name I pray. Amen. So, Matthew chapter 5 is where Jesus starts what's called the greatest sermon that's ever preached. It's, it's the Beatitudes, and if you've You've been a new lifer for a while, then, then, you know, Bill and Scott preached through this a few years ago. And so some of this may sound familiar to you. Um, but like I said, it's the, it's the beginning of what they call the Beatitudes. And, and it's kind of towards the, the beginning slash middle of, of Jesus's ministry. He's, he's just come out of the wilderness. He's just been tempted um, for 40 days and, 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 and fasted and, and gotten his kind of instructions. Um, and he's, he's been baptized. He's been tempted. And he's kind of begun his ministry a little bit. He's called his first disciples, and, and he's been doing these great miracles, these great healings, and, and there's not been a person that, that hasn't experienced Jesus that, that hasn't been healed and their life hadn't been changed. And so these, he's kind of got these great crowds that follow him, and it's, it's, it's this way in, in Jesus' ministry all the time. It seems like the bigger his crowd gets, the more direct and, and focused his message gets, and then they, they kind of fall away, and then he picks up another crowd, and then they fall away again. And so this is kind of Jesus' first big crowd that he's gathered. And so they're, they're surrounding him, they're, they're, they're wanting his attention, they're wanting his healing, they're wanting his miracles. And, and so Jesus in this moment pulls away, and he goes up onto this mountain. In the beginning of the Beatitudes, it, it specifies who Jesus is talking to. And in, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And so he's teaching his disciples in this whole section of Scripture, you know, the, the, the whole chapter 5 and into 6, is, is Jesus teaching his disciples what it truly means to be his disciple, what it truly means to be a Christian and a follower of him. And he, he takes several things that they've been taught before in their life and he turns them on their head because Jesus is more focused about the heart of the issue and not the, the, just the action of the issue. He's, he's more concerned with the person's heart. And so he, he opens up and he starts talking about how um, people are blessed and, and telling them that, that they're going to be the salt and the light of the world, that they're, they're going to be the ones that, that would show the truth of God to the world, that they were going to be the ones that really illuminated the darkness that surrounded them, the false teachings and, and the, 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 what the people's vision was turned and it was skewed, and they weren't focused on what the truth of God was. He's telling his disciples that they were going to be the ones that really spread that truth. Um, and then he reassures them that, that he's not come to do away with the law, that he's actually come to fulfill it. And there's not one single thing from the law that he's going to do away with. But, but he's, he's, he's specific on wanting them to understand that the law was given and there's a reason for the law, but it's, it's much deeper than any rabbi has ever taught you guys. It's much different. It's, it's, much, it's much more personal than just doing a list of rights and wrongs. 
and he even ends that little section in telling them that if their righteousness does not exceed the Pharisees and the scribes, which would have been the top religious people of the day, that, that they cannot enter into heaven. And those are, those are powerful words. Those are strong words because for their entire life, those have been the people that they've looked up to spiritually. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, you're heroes spiritually. The people that you think are top dogs, if your righteousness is not more than theirs, then you'll never enter into the kingdom. And then he goes and he starts flipping things, that, that the commands and the, and the, the Ten Commandments, and, and showing the heart of what God was saying when he taught them to Moses. He gave them to Moses. And he starts off with anger. He tells them that even though they were told not to murder, that murder actually starts in the heart, and that anger in the heart is just as bad as murder. He's saying it's not enough to just not go out and kill anybody. That if there's any anger in our hearts and in our souls, then we might as well have killed that person anyways. But that's what anger does to us. It causes this, this bitterness and this, this aggression, and, and you end up cutting that person off. And I believe that Jesus is even saying that even if I've not killed you spiritually, if, if that person is lost, and I let anger get into my life, and I, I no longer want to talk to them, and I cut them out of my life, then, then they've, had, they've got one less vessel to tell them about eternal life. So anger kills. He wants them to understand it's not just about not doing the physical act of murder, but it's, it's about the heart. And then he goes to one of the, it's like Jesus hits these two huge sins just back to back. He does anger, and then he does lust. He does lust. And he does the exact same thing. He, he goes to the heart of the issue, and that's, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going we're gonna to spend it in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Um, and just, just to preface this just a little bit, we're going to talk about some uncomfortable things this morning. And trust me, I'm just as uncomfortable, so you're not alone. But I believe that this section of Scripture is paramount, paramount to be preached. Because there's people in this room, there's a lot of people in this room, I'm sure, that that desperately need to hear this. And so I'm going to be tactful, and I'm going to say it in a way that a pastor should. But we're going to talk about some uncomfortable stuff this morning. And, and I'm going to do it in a way that's just Scripture. And so y'all hang with me. If it makes you a little uncomfortable, I'm sorry, but that's what the Bible is supposed to do. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, it says, You have heard it said, which is the exact same way he started off angry. It says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Jesus gets radical. He gets, he gets wild. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body would be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is far better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body would go to hell. You see, once again, Jesus starts out with a, you have heard, but, but I say. You see, this culture's teaching that the Pharisees were teaching was that you, you can't commit adultery. And they were serious about it. You know, if you committed adultery, if you were caught in adultery, they took you out into the street and they stoned you to death, which is the, just, it's got to be like second worst way to die ever first being crucifixion, they pummel you to death with stones. 
starting with the person who had the most aggression towards you to the last. And they would, it wasn't like this big circle where they just threw stones at you all at once and you died quickly. It was one stone after one stone after one stone. So it was a very slow, incredibly painful process. And so they were right. The Pharisees and the scribes were, were, were super correct about you should not commit adultery. And that's, that's in the law that Moses gives in Leviticus. It says that a person that is caught in adultery should be um, put to death. And so their, their zeal, their passion for the law was, was spot on. But what Jesus is saying is, you guys aren't doing the physical act, but many, many, many of you are already doing it in your heart. And so he, he flips it on them. And he, he says, it's, it's got to be, the heart has to, be, has to be cleansed. You have to take that kind of passion and, and, and also apply it to your heart. And so Jesus does that. He kind of breaks this thing down and, and in, in this verse, he says, but I say to you, anyone who looks, I don't want to stop there and, and it break that down a little bit. It's not a passing glance because sometimes you can't help it. If I'm going to, to cut grass or something like that and a girl runs down the road and I just happen to be pointing my lawnmower in the same way she is, it's not sinful. What's sinful is when I, I'm going that way and I stop and I stare. It's that second Look, that gets you, just like in the Bible with, with David and Bathsheba. You know, David was just strolling out on his roof. There was nothing wrong about where he was. There was nothing wrong about him hanging out on his roof in the, in the middle of the day. And as he scanned his kingdom from that high point, Bathsheba was taking a bath on one of the roofs. And, and David could have done this. He could have gone, oh, I don't need to look at that, and walked back into his house. And the physical act of seeing is, is not the sin. It's when David said, okay, and he stopped and stared. And they let his brain go to different places. That's when the sin took root. And, and I want you guys to understand because there's this culture that just beats us up and we feel like we've got to walk and look at our shoes. That's not where sin starts. Sin starts in your mind when you take that first thought and you take that look and you let it grow to something. So Jesus is saying that that word in, in, in the Greek means to continuously look, to gaze, to stare at. It's a different kind of word. He says, if you look, if you continuously gaze at a woman with lustful intent, and I want to kind of hit this real hard too. There's a difference because me and Olivia do this sometimes too. If, if, if we're watching a show and there's a pretty lady on the TV, I have full right because she's comfortable with it. So that's a pretty lady. I've looked at her and I've looked at her features. I said she's got pretty hair or her face is nice. I say a little bit more classy than that. Her face is nice. It's kind of rude. Um, but but you know what I mean? I can, I can compliment and I can appreciate the beauty that, that God has created. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I think my wife is beautiful. I think her facial features are beautiful. I think the way that she's structured is beautiful. I think God made her perfect. But that does not cause me to have lustful intent always. Because I can just appreciate beauty. Jesus is specifying that when you gaze, when you take that look and you stare, and then you do it with a lustful intent. So what that means, and, and y'all hang with me, is, is when, I, when you stare at somebody, when you take those looks, and this is guys and girls that I've, I've learned in youth ministry at a couple different churches that this is not just a male issue. When you look at someone and then your brain starts to take it to a place that is lustful and sexual, or you start to undress with your eyes and you take it to a place that, that it should never be, that is lustful intent. Because you're no longer appreciating beauty, but you are satisfying your own selfish desires within your heart. 
That's what makes it a sin. And I want, you, I want to understand it. I want everybody to understand what makes this a sin. It's not the look. It's not appreciating beauty. But it's when you take that look and that beautiful creation that God has made, whether it be male or female, and you start to do things that God never intended to be because that's not your husband or your wife. That is sin. You've got to understand the lustful intent part of it. And Jesus is, is being very, very specific. When you look at someone, he says, when you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her and adultery is just this it's sex outside the bounds of marriage it's anything that does not happen in the marriage bond of a man and a woman it's one man one woman for life and i don't care if it's the one that you thought you were supposed to be with once you put a ring on it they're yours god's will becomes that person automatically there is no god god well god says i'm supposed to go with another woman no he didn't because scripture clearly states that that's not how he works. God does not have preferences. He does not change his mind. He doesn't have exceptions to the rule. Whoever you are with is who you are with for life. Anything else is adultery. That's what it is. And Jesus is agreeing. I mean, right before this, he says he's come to fulfill the law, not change it. And the law states that anyone who puts or commits adultery is subject to death. So he's serious about it. He's deadly serious about it. That This is something that, that wrecks everything that you are. And, and Jesus then takes it from the physical to the spiritual and says, if you even are looking, you're taking those times to look, and you have that lustful intent, then you are guilty of the same sin that anyone that you guys and the Pharisees in that day would, would have deemed worthy to be stoned. So Jesus takes this very serious. Very, very serious. And, and because of his seriousness, he... He, he prescribes, Dr. Jesus prescribes, a very serious course of action. He didn't say, well, just, you know, just pray about it. Which is the church thing that we do. Well, if you're struggling with that, well, you just need to pray about it. No. I'm not saying prayer is ever a wrong thing, but Jesus says, you need serious action. And so Jesus' recommendation, this is what he says to do. Verse 29, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, then tear it out and throw it away. So what Jesus is saying, his words, not his intent, it says, take a spoon and pop that thing out. If that's what's causing you to sin, then you don't need it because it is better for you to come into the, the kingdom of God completely blind than for you to, to not end up in heaven and end up in hell because of one of your members. Then he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, you lop that bad boy off. I mean, put it on a table, get you a big old butcher knife and just whoosh, right off. Jesus is serious. This is serious stuff. But there's a problem with it. If you just take Jesus' words at face value, okay, my looking is causing me to sin. Well, I guess I don't get eyes anymore. Pop them out. Or my, my touch, you know, with, with sexual sin, touching is, is a big part of it. He's, okay, that causes me to sin. Done. There's an issue with Jesus' prescription because I have a left hand. Right? The left eye. I can, I can lust equally with my left eye, as I have my right eye. I can do whatever I need to with my left hand that I did with my right hand. I'll be a little bit more clumsy because I'm not left-handed. I'll make it work, right? So obviously, Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that actual prescription for the problem. And people have gotten this wrong for decades and decades. There's, a, there's an early church father back in like the like AD 100 that took this verse so literal that he actually castrated himself wild but he's later said he, he castrated himself and moved to this monastery in Egypt and he said 
I found out that even though I did not have my, my, the wounds, I didn't have the, the object of my sexual um, sin, and I did not have the surroundings of my sexual sin, I realized that the devil had no problem finding me in the middle of a monastery in the middle of Egypt. It's a heart issue. This issue is not outward, it's, it's, it's internal. And if all you focus on is the external issues, then you're going to miss it. It's like if, you, if you've got cancer and all they do is say, well, my cancer causes me to have a headache, and they give you Advil and say you should be all good. It's a symptom. It's a symptom of, of, of a much deeper issue here. You've got to kill this thing at the source. And if you're not willing to kill it at the source, then you're never going to be able to get past it. So like I said, Jesus gets to the heart of it all. And, and what I believe Jesus is saying is that you have to be willing to sacrifice the things that are the most important in you in an effort to get rid of the sin struggle. Picture this. Okay, take the physical of it. Do you know how awful it would have to be? The mental fortitude that you'd have to have to spoon your own eye out? I mean, it makes me queasy just thinking about it. And then to, to, to say, okay, I'm going to chop my, my right arm off and to actually physically do it yourself. The, the amount of willpower it would take to do that is insane. And then think about all the life changes that you'd have to go through. I remember when Adelaide was born, and, and parents will probably understand exactly what I'm saying. Newborn babies have to be held all the time, right? Well, you have to hold them with one of your hands. So you have to learn to be left-handed at everything. I figured out that I could brush my teeth one-handed. It's very strange, and Adelaide goes like this. But you can do it. But it changed my whole life. I had to learn how to eat breakfast one-handed. I had to learn how to pour cereal and milk left-handed. It was not pretty. I spilled it lots of times. Changed my whole world. And that's not having no right hand. That's just having to use my left hand. Changed everything. It changed my lifestyle. It changed how I had to do things. Everything in my life became different because I did not have use of my right hand because it was carrying my child. Uh, there's, a, there's a pastor that I know well who's struggling with eye problems. He's um, going to have to have surgery um, here soon to, to hopefully correct it, but he may only have another eight to ten years to be able to see. He's a pastor. He studies and reads for a living. And if he loses that ISAT, his life is never going to be the same. It's a huge thing to, to have to cut out of your life. The sacrifice has to be massive, is what Jesus is saying. He's, he's saying that if it, if it doesn't disrupt everything about your life, it's not going to work. It has to change who you are. The, the realization that your sin issue is going to kill you has to be far bigger than anything that you hold dear to yourself. has to be. The, everything that you can do to get rid of the sin has to be fixed, has to be changed. That's what it takes to kill a heart issue. Life change. Discipline. It's fighting off that natural sin urge that you have with every ounce of you that you've got. Because the physical solutions won't, just won't fix it. And also, while, while I'm on this subject, demonizing the subject won't fix it either. Demonizing the subject will never fix the issue. So there's, there's many solutions. You can run from it physically. You can try to put some like, small little barriers up. Um, you, can, you can do the physical thing like that guy I told you about did. Or you, you can demonize it. And, and I think that's something that the church does a great job at. And I say this with, with all love in my heart. The church is about 20 years behind everything. Um, we, we've, we've demonized sex and, and, and lust and, and what marriage is supposed to be for so long that, that it, 
these kids are growing up, it's almost like physical trauma and, and emotional trauma over sex. I mean, I, I have friends that the night of their, their marriage, when they were supposed to start this magical journey together, that could not have sex because they were so physically scared of it, because it was so ingrained in them that it was a sin, it was dirty. It's a big, big issue, and, and so demonizing it won't fix it. Can't be the solution, because here's the thing, sex is a beautiful thing. God created it. Um, my prayer for you, and this may be too far, but I don't care. My prayer for every person in this room that is married in, the, in the, the way that God would have them to be married has a beautiful, happy sex life. You make happier people that way. God created it to be a beautiful thing. And, and I don't know, I, I heard this a while back, and it, it really spoke to me. If you take the weird, immature thought of, of having sex with God, that whole thought, and you take it and throw it away, and you think back to the intimacy that you and your spouse share. When everything is perfect, when nobody's being selfish, when everything is pure, you're connected emotionally, spiritually, and physically, the, the joy, the pure bliss that you feel in those moments, that's the kind of relationship, it's supposed to mirror our relationship with God. Sex done the right way is a form of worship, people. It's a form of worship because it mirrors the closeness that we're supposed to have with our Father. The intimacy, the closeness, the physical, emotional connection. We're supposed to be that in tune with God, and that's why God gave it to us. Everything that we have is a mirror of God. The reason we have relationships in the first place is that there's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they have relationship. God wants everything about us to mirror Him. So we can't demonize the subject. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about what it truly is and what it truly isn't. talked about for what it is none of those solutions will suffice the only solution is radical life change and boundaries in your heart just like that church had these massive brick walls in the way that I could not get past your spiritual life has to have the exact same things your spiritual life has to have massive change so that you can stop temptation in its tracks you have to make every effort to make sure sin finds it impossible to cause you to stumble so what does real life change look like? If, if you've got a sin issue, a specifically lust issue, and you can take this and apply it to other, other issues in your life, other sin issues, but if you specifically have a lust issue, and it comes at you every day, or if it's breaking your marriage apart, I know several marriages that have been torn apart from this issue. Pornography issues and, and lusting after other women makes people feel very, very insecure. It drives a wedge, a hard wedge in between families. So if that's where you are and your marriage is suffering or you just personally are battling this internal sin, you've got to put these huge barriers in your life. So maybe it's as radical as you going back to a flip phone. It's hard to look at something when you ain't got no data and you can't look at it on the screen. But you say, Todd, my, my, everything's on my phone. Well, yeah, exactly. Radical life change. But your sin's also in your phone or your laptop or your iPad. Or maybe if it's, if it's some sort of electronic sin, maybe you stick all your stuff in, in a common room, leave it out in the open. Maybe as radical as going back and having one computer sitting in the living room and only people around you can use it. Or there's programs that my mentor told me about, and I'm preaching from experience, people. It's a program that you have to come up with somebody to email and alert every time you look at something inappropriate. Maybe you need to talk to your wife and say, I've got this issue. Or maybe you need to talk to your husband and say, I've got this issue. I need your help. You download these programs. And anytime you look at anything even remotely close to that, send your wife or your spouse or your husband an email that says you've looked at it. Ultimate accountability. Maybe that's something you need to do. 
Maybe somebody needs to move out. I don't know everybody's relationship in this room. Maybe somebody needs to move out of where they live in. Maybe that you've got yourself convinced that you can live with your boyfriend or girlfriend and it'd be okay. I don't care how old you are. If you're living with somebody and you're staying in the same house, temptation is way too close. It's way too easy to do. Maybe somebody needs to move out in this room. I don't know. Some, for some of you, it may be giving up friendships with people that encourage that kind of talk or encourage that kind of behavior. Every one of us knows somebody with a filthy mouth that just talks down and degrades women or degrades guys, talks about sex constantly. If those are your best friends, you might need to put some distance on you because what I've learned is when you hang out with those people, it, it causes you to have those same thoughts. It causes you to have those same things going on in your life. Maybe you need to cut out some friendships. But for all of us, no matter what it is, it, it takes real confession. Not a vague confession, not a, not a half-hearted confession, but it takes real confession to find freedom. I'll be honest with you guys and be a little bit transparent. There was some serious struggles at the beginning of our marriage, mine and Olivia's, where, where every now and then I did struggle with pornography. And you know the most beautiful thing in the world was that when I told Olivia, she stopped and prayed for me. And now we have an open communication when those things come up and that, that, that temptation rears ahead. I can go to her and talk to her about it and it'd be okay. Confession is a beautiful thing. Working together and understanding your spouse's sin struggles is okay. You can help each other to where that doesn't have to be a thing in your life anymore. That's an extra boundary that you can put up. Real confession. Real confession is important. Maybe it's stopping a, a TV show. I know back when I was being discipled uh, uh, several years ago, I, I, I loved the show Dexter. It was a little psychological, gross, and creepy. But it was a different place then. Um, but it's also full of nudity. And about halfway through it, I really loved the show. I really loved the show because it was interesting. I didn't really, I, I wasn't focused on the nudity, but every now and then it would cause me to stumble. I had to quit. Just stop watching the show completely. Maybe you need to cut out those kind of influences in your life. Maybe, maybe you're a Game of Thrones friend, fan. It's a horrible show. It just is. Or you watch reality TV shows. There's a million of them, and, and they depict this wrong kind of relationship. And what it does is it skews your mind about what, what biblical relationships are supposed to look like. If that's the case, and it's causing you to look at other people and try to expect that same kind of reality TV show relationship, maybe you need to cut them out. It's not okay. It's not the way that God would have it to be. If you absorb the wrong kind of relationship examples, then that's what you're going to look at. It's that whole garbage in, garbage out mentality. Accountability is key. And understanding what sex truly is is key. And I'm going to be frank. I'm going to be real. But I want you guys to turn to 1 Corinthians, if you will, so that you don't hear it out of my mouth. You hear it out of Paul's. He's got more accountability. 1 Corinthians 7. I'm just going to read a little piece. Like I said earlier, I, I believe that, that sex is a kind of worship. I believe that that mirrors the relationship we're supposed to have. And, and I think Paul, in chapter 7, gives us more barriers that we need to put up. I believe he gives a great example here and, and shows us exactly what we're supposed to do. And I, I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to read it. I'm going to start in verse 1. Um, now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality... 
Each man should have his own wife. He's saying, if you can do it, Paul was a superhero. I don't know how he pulled it off. If you can do it, don't be married and just serve God. But because sexual temptation is so great, you need to find you a husband or a wife. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then this is where it gets a little uncomfortable, but I'm just going to talk about it. We're going to read it. It says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves in prayer. But then come back together quickly so that Satan may not tempt you because you lack self-control. What they're saying is Paul even wants you to have a happy, healthy sex life because without it, Satan has a foothold in your life. And, and I, want, I want everybody to understand, it says women do not have control over their own body and likewise men do not have control over their own body, which means that y'all should have a beautiful, equal agreement about what sex is supposed to be in your relationship. And then understand that that's an important part for both people. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered in that whole process. Be concerned with your other person's needs and wants and, and desires so that you can have equalness in your relationship. And so Satan does not have a foothold in your marriage. It's another boundary that Paul says, and that's, that's straight from Paul, that Satan may not tempt you. And that's what we're, we're focused on, the sexual sin. We're trying to get rid of it and trying to put boundaries, and, and that's straight from Paul. You've got to make drastic change. You've got to make drastic change. If you don't want to fall back into the same habit, it takes radical change in your life. It takes heart change that will make everything different. And so to wrap up as the, as the band comes back up here, Jesus understands and, and is cool with talking about the uncomfortable situations, and the uncomfortable sins, the uncomfortable struggles. Let's just be real. Lust is a huge issue in this society, right? If you agree that lust is a huge issue in this society, raise your hand. Okay, we're all on the same page. Then we have to do something about it. Because if not, it will wrap itself around your life in such a way that your marriage will crumble, your personal life will crumble, everything about you will crumble because you will be addicted and your mindset will go completely off base. It's out there. And it's one of Satan's favorite tools, that and anger. It's one of his favorite tools to get inside marriages. It's to get inside young people and warp their mindset about how things are. Listen, if you struggle with pornography, I can guarantee you, anybody in this room, it is not real. It's not what real sex is about. It's not what real life marriage is supposed to be about. It's completely different. It's fake, and it will warp your brain and cause actual legitimate psychological issues later on with how you see sex and how you see other people. It has been proven. It has been studied. It warps you. You've got to kill it because it's trying to kill you no matter if you want to acknowledge it or not. So what are you going to do? What do you have to do to change that struggle in your life? Jesus says to cut it out. So listen to me. I don't care if it completely changes everything about your life. I don't care if you've got to confess it to somebody and get them to help you. If you've got to get rid of your phone, get rid of your phone. Go back to a beeper. I don't know. People will get a hold of you somehow, I promise. Those of you that have Snapchat, it's not worth it. Y'all know what's on there. Maybe you get, it, get rid of your Facebook Excuses will flow like crazy about why you can't, why you can't. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ says, if it is causing you to stumble, if it is causing sin in your life, it is not worth ruining everything that I have for you. 
Some of you today need to start putting up walls in your life so that that sin cannot control you anymore. It starts with confession first at the altar and confession with other people. And it ends with making radical life change. If you want freedom, and I'm telling you, you can have freedom over that sin. It's not something that you have to suffer with your entire life. If you want to find freedom in that, you can, but it takes changing everything about you. I don't care how precious it is to you. Your life is more important. The spouse sitting beside you is more important. The person at the office that you casually flirt with, they're not worth your spouse. They're not worth your family. They're not worth your kids. They're not worth the eternal impact that you're supposed to have on this world. It's not worth it. This morning, I want to challenge you guys. As the band, or Eric, not the band, plays one last song. I want you guys to stand. I'm going to ask you to be bold this morning. I'm going to ask you to be bold. Because a lot of times what happens is your, your mind will go, well, if I go down to the altar, they're going to think I'm cheating on my wife. You know how dumb that is? And if you're in the congregation, that's how your brain thinks. Shame on you. There are people in this church that need to be broken before God. You shouldn't be worried about them. You should be invested in your own life. And if you're too busy thinking about the people at the altar, then maybe you've got some sin issues that you need to be down here praying about. So today I'm going to ask you to come down to this altar. It doesn't even matter if it's a lust issue, if it's, a, if it's, if it's a, um, that kind of a sexual sin. It doesn't matter if that's it. If you, if you, if you struggle with anger or, or lying or, or, or gossip or, or stealing or, or whatever it is, you have to do the same process for any sin. Cut it out of your life. Whatever causes you to stumble, whatever causes you to sin, kill it today because it will follow you out this door and it will attack you every second that you don't kill it. Don't pet it. Don't feed it. Kill it. And I ask you to do that this morning. Radical life change is what it takes. Father, I know. I know because it happened in my own life. It happened with my parents. It happened with all my friends' parents. There are marriages in here that are struggling. I know it. I don't know how many. I don't know who they are. But I know there are marriages that are struggling because somebody in that relationship has a skewed version of what sex is supposed to be, what lust is, that has a porn problem, that has some sort of sin in their life that is, that is tearing that relationship apart. God, I, I pray that you would destroy it this morning. God, that you would cause weeping and brokenness in this room, that you would cause people to, to severely rethink everything that they're doing, that they would see their spouse again instead of seeing these images that are playing in their head. I pray that you would allow them to, to, to soften their heart, that they would be able to see everything that you'd have in their life, see the goodness and the glory of you so that they could understand that there's not a single thing in this world that is over or more important than what you've called them to do. God, break lives, fill this altar, and not just so I can, I can feel good about the message I preach, so that the people in this church can be the real body and can go out and do the real mission that you've got them to do. They can't do that if they're swimming and they're surrounded by, by sin and Satan's attempts to attack them. They can't do it, God. So set the captive free in this room today. Break people. Do whatever it is that you've got to do to restore marriages, restore hearts, restore um, anything that needs to be restored.